And so, Father, we know that uh, you change our heart with your word, not a dead word, but a living word. So, Father, we ask now that um, you would speak your word as you have been speaking your word this entire time. Well, all of reality is sustained by your word, but speak your word to our hearts now, Lord, as we preach. And Father, um, since this is like, I don't know, like our 30-something message from Romans as we preach through Romans, I pray for those that are kind of tuning in or listening for the first time that you would particularly help them connect the dots uh, because Jesus, Paul is connecting the dots in such a beautiful way. Uh, they all connect and reveal you. So I pray that we would see you, Jesus. Um, it's in your name that we pray. Amen. All right, you may be seated if you're not already uh, seated. What I um, have to say today, as usual, is something I think really on one level is just so simple. And yet, as usual, I suspect that we'll all tend to think it's utterly confusing and complex. And I suspect that's not because it is utterly confusing and complex so much as because of the lies that have been spoken uh, about it are so utterly confusing and complex. They all go back to a lie spoken in a garden by the liar. And at least in America, they all have to do with this thing that we refer to as free will. I think we believe that we are our free will. And maybe we are. I think we believe that we are saved by free will. And maybe we are. Maybe we are the sum total of all our choices, or at least our, our good choices. I think we believed um, that, that we are saved by uh, free will, and, and, and maybe you are, because we say things like, well, some make poor choices, some make good choices, because God gave us free will. We say some are going to heaven, some are going to hell, because, you know, free will. I think we believe that we are judged by free will, and maybe we are. But what is free will? We talked about that last time, which is now three weeks ago, because I took some time off to goof around with my son. But free will really isn't a term that the Bible uses, surprisingly, and yet we use it all the time. And so last time we suggested that a free will must be, number one, a will that's free of constraint by other wills. No one makes it wills, and what it wills, it happens. Number one, a will is uh, free will, uh, a will that's free from constraint by other wills. And number two, a will that's free not only from, but to, to not only will what it wants, but also want what it wills. In other words, a truly free will wills what it knows to be the good. If that's free will, then I would just like to remind you that the Bible is the story of free will. In the beginning, God wills everything into existence with his word. 
His will is totally unrestrained because it's all that is. He wills all things into existence over the span of six days or epics or eons, if you study the, the Hebrew. He wills all things into existence over the span of six days and he calls it good. At the end of the sixth day, he sees that everything is good. In other words, he wills what he wants, and then he wants what he has willed, and what he wills. At the end of the sixth day and the beginning of the seventh, he declares that everything is right, everything is good, and it is finished, perfected, completed, ended, to telestai from telos, the, the end. So God is free will, and God has free will. But on the sixth day, something utterly bizarre happens. <laughs> A being which God has willed into existence with his word begins to will what God does not will. We begin to read about that in Genesis chapter 2. So Genesis 1, as, as you know if you've been here for a while, it's the history of all of time, Genesis chapter 1. But Genesis 2 starts telling us about Day six, when, when God made Adam, humanity. In Genesis chapter one, on, on the sixth day, in, in that account, God says, let us make man, let us make Adam in our own image and likeness. That's his will, that's God's will. And on the seventh day, it's finished, it is finished, even time itself is finished. But in Genesis two, on the sixth day, man, humanity, tries to make himself in the image of God. That's man's will. Man does his will or tries to do his will and everything begins to die. He wills what he wants and then he doesn't want what he wills because, well, it's evil. It's not the image of God. And now, right, we are beginning, we are beginning, right, it's occurring to us, we're beginning to know. The rest of the Bible is then wrestling with this question, although not stated in this fashion. Who has free will? In other words, who gets what he wants? Who gets his will? Will God make man in his own image? Or will man make himself in the image of God? And now, once again, just as we did three weeks ago, we need to pause for a message from our commercial sponsor. I love that commercial. 
Have any of you ever experienced a bona fide miracle? I mean, not one that could be disputed, but one where it's like, holy, that was a miracle. You ever experienced that? It's where you will something, and then like miraculously, you get that something, right? Like the little boy in the Darth Vader outfit. It's what the Bible refers to as a sign. And so you think to yourself, I can't believe that just happened. And then you think, so why doesn't it happen all the time? Well, what would happen if every time that little boy in the commercial wanted to levitate the dog, every time the little boy in the commercial wanted to control his mom or start the car, his dad just pressed a button and it automatically happened? What would happen to that boy if he always got whatever he wanted. That is, if he had what some would call a free will. Well, you know. You know what would happen. If he had very much free will, well, he could never grow a good will. Instead, he would be trapped in a bad will. He'd be spoiled. So my mom would call it. Spoiled children get whatever they want, and then they don't want what they get, for they don't know what they truly want. They don't know the good, which is usually the person from whom they're trying to get whatever it is that they want. I bet that little boy thought his dad was a bit like Darth Vader. Why? Well, because his dad could pick up the dog. His dad exercised probably some kind of control over his mom. Time for lunch. And his dad could start the car whenever he wanted. That little boy wanted to be like his dad. But did you notice how he pushed his dad away, trying to impress his dad? Or, or be his dad? Well, if that little boy had too much free will, if his dad actually gave him whatever he wanted, well, he wouldn't just pretend to be Darth Vader. He'd become Darth Vader. In which case, he'd need to be saved from himself, which is an incredibly painful procedure. It's killing the false Anakin Skywalker in order to liberate the true Anakin Skywalker. Anakin Skywalker. It's, it was taking off Darth Vader's mask, like we saw last time. It's the circumcision of Darth Vader, like we talked about last time. And so then there's this question, well, why did his dad push the button at all? And then chuckle to himself when he did. Well, maybe because he genuinely likes his son. You know, just delights in his son. And so it just gives him a kick to make his son happy. He's happy when his son is, is happy. Maybe it's a sign, a sign of what's to come. Free will, a good free will. A son raised in the image and likeness of his dad. See, the father likes his son, but the father isn't Darth Vader, and he doesn't want his son to become Darth Vader because he's not particularly fond of Darth Vader. So I bet that father 
wouldn't start the car every time his little boy would will that the car would start so that he wouldn't become Darth Vader, so that he wouldn't have a free will without a good will, which is to be trapped in a bad will. That's not freedom, that's bondage. A good father, you see, isn't only power. Good father is always love. And he wills that his son be made in his own image and likeness. He wills his son's will to be free. But only after his son knows what it is to be good. In biblical lingo, to be righteous. Well, that's a review of last time. And it's context for this time and maybe for all of time. For a long time, that little VW ad, I did some research, it was the most watched Super Bowl ad in all of history. Second most shared ad, or Super Bowl ad in all of history, all of time, and I suspect that's because each one of us is a child of God, trying to be God, and not fully aware of who God, our Father, is. Each one of us is a little child of God pretending to be Darth Vader. But our father is not Darth Vader, the dark father. He's the father of lights, revealed on a tree, in a garden. In other words, Jesus is the righteousness of God. Romans chapter 10, verse 1, which we preached on last time. Brothers, my heart's desire, writes Paul, and prayer for them, Israel, his church, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to, literally, recognition. They don't recognize him. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end, the telos, the perfection, the completion, the fulfillment of the law for righteousness in everyone who believes, all the, all the trusting, all the faithing, and now I need to remind you of what hopefully you remember that Paul has been talking about righteousness for all of Romans, right? So in Romans 1, we read that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith or faithfulness to faith since faithfulness and faith are, are one word in Greek. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith or the righteous will live from my faithfulness as Bart translates it. In Romans 2, we read that it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous, but the doers of the law. So righteousness is not simply like a designation in a book on a shelf somewhere. Righteousness is like a life that manifests in you and the things that you do. In Romans 3, we read that none are righteous. <laughs> That's kind of a shock all of a sudden. None are, none, none, are, none are righteous. Then we read that the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law through the faith of Jesus who God put forward as a propitiation through the faith in his blood. So the faith is in his blood, like breath, <gasps> or spirit is in your blood. Romans 4, we read that faith is reckoned as righteousness. And remember, that's not because God cooks the books. That's the way we say it sometimes. But because faith is righteousness. It's what makes us right. Faith is reckoned as righteousness, 
and it came to Abraham as a promised seed. He talks about that in chapter four. In Abraham, it grew and became a kingdom, and not just in Abraham. In Romans five, we read that as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification of life for all men. In Romans six, we read that we can be slaves of sin, or this is the other option, slaves of righteousness. And yet we noted that the righteousness of God has made himself slave to all and servant of all. In Romans 7, we read that Paul is divided. He's divided for he wants to do righteousness in his inner man, but he's enslaved to the law of sin, unrighteousness, in his outer man, a body of sin and death. And so in his words, the truth is imprisoned in the chains of his own unrighteousness. A bit like a little boy stuck in a Darth Vader outfit. In Romans 8, we read that if Christ is in you, although your body is dead because of sin, the spirit, the breath, is life because of righteousness. In Romans 9, we learn that we've all been vessels of wrath, but we're predestined to be vessels of mercy. So, quote, it's not dependent on human will or exertion, but upon God who has mercy. Mercy is the free will of God which justifies us. To justify in the Greek is literally to make right. And then declare right, that's good. That's righteousness. And so for all of Romans we've been building this slide as we've worked, as we've worked our way through the books, uh, through the book, remember? Um, we are justified, made right, by number one, grace as a gift. Number two, the faith of Jesus. Number three, the resurrection of Jesus. Number four, the blood of Jesus. Number five, the life that is Jesus. Number six, the death of self. And number seven, God. It's God who justifies. You see, Jesus is the righteousness of God and how God makes us righteous. We all want righteousness and we all need righteousness because righteousness is rightness. In fact, it should probably be translated that way because we turn righteousness into this weird thing, but we all want to be right. Every sinner is seeking righteousness in the wrong way. Because every sinner is not aware of what or who righteousness truly is. And, and the worst of sinners are religious sinners. Why? Well, because they are the very best at seeking righteousness in the wrong way. And so seeking to establish their own righteousness, they do not submit to God's righteousness. In other words, they crucify Jesus trying to be Jesus, rather than submit to Jesus and thus bear the fruit of Jesus, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, good, faith. Faith is righteousness, <laughs> and we don't create it. We don't create it with our own free will. Righteousness is the free will of God, the faithfulness of God that creates us. So, God has free will, and is free will. 
And what does that say about God? Well, it means that God wills what he wants and wants what he wills. It means that God in Christ Jesus died on the cross for you not because he had to, but because he wanted to and he always wants to. In, in modern American evangelicalism, preachers will often say something like this. God is love, but God is also just. And so in order to satisfy justice, God has to. You force him to do it. God has to punish someone. And so he punished Jesus instead of punishing you. But God does not have to do anything. And God's justice is quite literally, in Greek, God's righteousness, which means that God's justice is God doing what he wants to do and always wanting what he does. In other words, he suffered for you only because he wanted to suffer for you. Jesus said to his disciples, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. And Jesus is the free will of God. And Jesus is the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. And so God decided to die for you long before you ever sinned against him. And he didn't die because he had to, but only because he wanted to. Now, there's some other fascinating stuff with this that we'll talk about next week when we talk about the Garden of Gethsemane. But, but right now, I want you to hear what I'm saying. I'm saying that dying for you was not an obligation for him. I just spent four days of uh, biking and four-wheeling and hiking and rafting with my son Coleman now, who's you know, married and working on his PhD in Logan, Utah. But before he arrived, he had some crazy things that happened on another trip. I called him and I left this message. I just said, Coleman, I know life is crazy for you right now. And so if you can't come to Denver, because um, he, he was planning to come alone since Natalie couldn't come with him and all this stuff was going on. I said, if, if you can't come to Denver, I don't want you to think that you have to come. I don't want you to feel obligated. Well, at, at lunch last week in downtown Denver having nachos at the restaurant that we used to bike to from our house when he was only five and we'd have nachos, he stopped me, looked me in the eye, and he gave me the greatest gift. He said, hey, Dad, listen, I don't want you to ever think that I'm here because I feel like I have to be with you. I always want to be with you. God in Christ Jesus suffered and died for you, not because he felt obligated, as if he had to love you, needed to love you, or should love you. God is not obligated to love you, and he doesn't want you to feel obligated to love him. But... You do. For you and for me, love is a law. But love is actually a life. 
Actually, the free will of God in human flesh hanging on a tree in a garden. So do you see him? That's the righteousness of God. The good. That's God himself hanging on a tree. And that's the life that is God. I am the life hanging on the same tree. That's the free will of God that is God. So do you have free will? We'd like to think we do, and yet we, we can't choose, I and mean, we can't simply will whatever we want and get it. What I mean is we all die. So much of what we call Christianity, I, I think, is simply magic. The idolatry of signs. It's little boys and girls pretending to be Darth Vader. So we say things like this, if you only had this knowledge, if you only had that knowledge, if you only tried harder, you could will what you want and God would do it. It would happen. And you see, sometimes it does happen. Marriages get healed, the money comes in, cancer is healed, legs even miraculously grow, that happened to me, it just freaks me out. And yet, we all die. We can't simply will what we want, and we often don't want what we will. You know, whenever you feel obligated, you obviously don't want what you will. Not only what you may have willed in the past, like now all of a sudden you realize it, it's a wrong, but whatever it is that you're willing right now. This is deeply ironic, but some would argue that because God gives us the law, that fact reveals that our will is free. So they'll say things like this. God says, do this. Just read it, Deuteronomy 30. God says, do this, and you will live, and do that, and you will die, and that reveals that life is our choice of free will. But the law doesn't reveal that our will is free. The law reveals that, in fact, our will is not free, and that we're dead and dying. Law tells us the things that we have to do, right? It tells us the things that we have to do. But if you think that you have to do something, it just reveals that you don't want to do that something. And so you must force yourself to will that something precisely because you don't actually want that something. In fact, you will that something because you actually hate that something and only will that something because you actually want something else. In other words, you're just using that something or someone. And this is the entire law. You will love the Lord, your God, with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. The law reveals that we don't love God. We don't love God, instead we use God because we want what isn't God, perhaps even that we would be God, a God who isn't actually God, but something a little more like Darth Vader. 
Well, we've all been tempted to turn love into law. That's original sin. But law can't make us love. can only reveal that we don't love. Law can't make us free. It only reveals that we're not free. Law can't make us right. It can only reveal that something is wrong with Adam. Remember? So we've all turned love into a law, but when that law, that dead thing, becomes a life, we get pregnant with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, the good, faith, that is the righteousness, which is the free will of God. In other words, we begin to like God. As I said last time, the term free will really isn't in the Bible, but the reality that it refers to is all over the Bible. Free will is love. And there's another term that's conspicuously absent from the Bible, and yet the reality it refers to is all over the Bible, and that word is like, and the reality that it refers to is also love. But you see, we don't consider liking to be loving, particularly in the church, for maybe we've crucified love. And so he's no longer alive, but only a law. That is human religion, which is bondage, not to the father of lights, but to the dark father, the father of lies. Okay, so whether or not you followed all of that, all right. This is the very simple thing that I'm trying to say, which at very best you're only beginning to believe. Ready? Because here it is. God likes you. And now, now immediately, something inside of you says, oh yeah, I knew that. He has to like me. No! God doesn't have to do anything. God likes you. And immediately there's like another little voice that says something like, yeah, but his opinion will change. No! He's eternal. He always just likes you. In the words of Karl Barth, God is the one who loves in freedom. Freedom, that means not because he has to. He doesn't love you because he has to, but because he wants to. Actually, God likes everything that's anything. He wills all of creation into existence and calls it good, and that which isn't good, well, that's which he did, that is which he did not will, which he did not create, which doesn't really actually exist. It's more like a shadow or a lie. So, anyway, this is the good news. This is the simple thing that I'm always trying to say, I always want to say. God likes you. And will always like you because, well, God's eternal. God likes you, and there's nothing, absolutely nothing that you could do to make him like you any less than he does, for that is who I am that I am is. God likes you regardless of whether or not you, you like him. God likes you thoroughly, relentlessly, unequivocally, and furiously. In fact, he likes you so much that if you were to see it right now, I think you'd just like burst into flames until nothing would be left but faith faith in him. God likes you, his creation, his son, his daughter, 
But he's not so fond of Darth Vader. <laughs> because Darth Vader is a lie about you and about him. God likes you and he wills that you would like him too. And that's the righteousness of God. That's the judgment of God. That's the free will of God. God likes you and he wills that you would like him too. You know, kind of like a communion of liking each other. One day when my daughter Elizabeth was in kindergarten, I took her for her annual physical. I remember that day. We were just having a great day. The doctor sat her on this examination table. I remember she sat there looking at me, just smiling, and I was looking at her, just smiling, as she swung her legs back and forth under the examination table. And Then the doctor walked in, and she began with this question. She said, so, Elizabeth, tell me, what do you like about yourself? And I remember, look, Elizabeth, she, she looked at me, and she said, I like being with my daddy. And then this young doctor reacted with a speed and intensity that I think betrayed a wound deep down within her. Elizabeth looked at me and she said, I like being with my daddy. And this doctor said, no! And then she kind of caught herself and she said, no, I mean, what do you like about yourself? And I remember Elizabeth looked at her like, I just told you. And she said, well, what I mean is, what do you like about yourself, you know, just you, Elizabeth, just you, like, you know, maybe that you could run fast. And I remember Elizabeth looked kind of confused, and she said, well, um, I like that I could run fast. And I remember getting so angry and almost saying, like, out loud, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me. How dare you tell my daughter that she is her own will and her own exertion? How dare you suggest that she like herself because she can beat her neighbor in a foot race? How dare you tell my daughter that she's her flesh because one day her legs will fail. One day her flesh will fail. Her will will fail. Her ego will fail. She'll turn to dust and blow away. But love is eternal. And she will always be my beloved in whom I delight. I just remember being so angry at that doctor. And then I remembered that that doctor had also been a little girl. A little girl that may have been abused by her dad. A little girl that didn't and perhaps still, still didn't and doesn't know that God is her daddy and she is always the apple of his eye, always. It was that year that we sent Elizabeth off to kindergarten where she was taught to take knowledge, then judge and be judged relative to her neighbors. That's other little boys and girls in her class. You know, like who runs the fastest, who spells the best, who's the best and who's the worst at math. It was that year that Elizabeth had the terrible, no good, very bad day that I told you about last December. It was the day that she morphed into a little Darth Vader, seriously, and nothing I could do would bring her back until I told everyone to get in the van because we were going out to dinner. 
And when we got there, I made Elizabeth stay in the van with me, sit next to me, look at me as everyone else went in and joined the party, you know what, Chuck E. Cheese or Red Robin or wherever it happened to be. I made her sit in the front seat right across from me and, and look me in the eye. I said, what's gotten into you? And she said, well, I know, but I'm not telling you. Not knowing what to do at that point, I made her come sit on my lap and I just hugged her, my sweetheart, hidden in Darth Vader. I now see that she was trying to be me because she didn't want to need me for she had lost faith in me. So anyway, not knowing what to do, I just held her for a long time. I loved on her until she cracked. She finally said, Daddy, do you remember Kelly? And I said, yes. She said, do you remember when you came to my kindergarten class? I said, yes. She said, well, after you left my class that day, Kelly said that you said to her that now she was your little girl and you really loved her and you didn't love me. And then she just erupted, my Elizabeth, my sweetheart erupted into this fountain of tears. And I watched Darth Vader begin to dissolve in front of my eyes. And after a time, like I told you, I said to Elizabeth, I said, Elizabeth, does Kelly have a daddy? And she said, yes. She just left Kelly and her mommy. And then through my sorrow, my tears, I spoke a word, Elizabeth, I love you. And I will always love you. And nothing can change that. Now listen, I'm a fallible dad, okay? So I screw up all the time. But maybe it wasn't just me that was talking. I said, Elizabeth, it hurts me when you don't believe that I love you. So if you doubt my love for you, please tell me so I can show you. I would give everything for you. So what got into Elizabeth? Well, the same thing that got into Eve that got into that first Adam, that got into you, a lie from the father of lies. You don't have a daddy, and if you do have a daddy, he only pretends to love you, he doesn't want to love you, he actually doesn't even like you. It is not okay to think that God doesn't like you. It's evil. Romans 10. Verse 4, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness in all the believing. He's the end of the have to so that you would want to. Next verse, for Moses writes about the righteousness of the law that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. And we focused on these verses last time. Paul is quoting Moses in Deuteronomy 30, and he's equating the commandments with righteousness, with faith, with Christ, with the word that is the word of faith that we proclaim. It's not a dead righteousness. It's a living righteousness. It's not a dead word, but a living word. It's not our free will. It's the free will of God rising within us. 
In Deuteronomy, Moses says this, the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. So Paul is saying, Christ is near you in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do Christ. And now you know that Christ is the word that is constantly doing us, creating us, and sustaining us. He's the free will that creates us and somehow becomes us. Free will in us is faith, hope, and love in us. The righteousness of God in us. Not simply imputed to us like in a ledger or a book on a shelf somewhere, but rising within us like a life in a tomb, rising from the dead, and, and not in just one moment of time, but every moment of time. Last time, last sermon, I shared how I argued with Susan that something I had said was the result of an idea that I had thought. That is, you know, my free will. And then Susan revealed that she had actually seen Jesus. She had a vision. She'd seen Jesus, the free will of God, whisper that word in my ear. The moment before it came out of my mouth as a word on my tongue. So you see, maybe whenever I'm proud of free will, I crucify free will and enslave myself to bad will. But I'm proud, by, and by that I mean proud as if I had created it. When, whenever I'm proud in that way, maybe I crucify will and enslave myself to bad will. But whenever I'm grateful for free will, Jesus rises in me as goodwill in me that comprises the new me, the free me. So actually, I am created by free will, saved by free will, and judged by free will. But it's not my own free will. It's the righteousness of God manifesting in me as me, the new me. We're saved by grace through free will, and this will is not of ourselves, that none of us should boast. Faith, hope, and love are the gift of God that is God in us. So, every good decision in me is the free will of God rising in me like one of these little red dots. You can see that's me with all these little red, red and black dots. And every bad decision in me is what I thought was free will, but is actually bad will for its good will that I claim to be my own creation, self-righteousness, which is not righteousness. You remember what we've, what we've learned, what we've said, that there is a me that I think I create with my judgments, and there is a me that God creates with his judgment, his word. And right now, I am this confusing mix of the two, you know, like a field of wheat and tares. I'm a hot mess. But to get from one to the other, I have to die with Jesus and rise with Jesus. And that process is literally the old me giving birth to the new me. But you see, it doesn't just happen in one moment of time, you know, like what we call the moment of decision at the end of the crosstalk at camp, it doesn't happen simply at one moment in time, it happens at every moment in time. When I sit on my father's lap, 
when I crawl into the inner tent, like we talked about at Easter, or just let him hold me as I listen to his word. I love you. I will always love you, and nothing can change my love for you. I like you, Peter, thoroughly, relentlessly, unequivocally, furiously, just as you are. For I know who you are, even though you probably do not know who you are. You're not Darth Vader. You're my beloved, in whom I'm well pleased. See, that word creates reality. And that word is eternal, which means it can and will transform every moment of time, transform every black dot into a, a red dot. It's, it's the word of faith, the faithfulness of God. It transforms moments in the past from shame into praise, and we call it forgiveness. It transforms moments in the future from fear into hope, and so we walk into the kingdom. It's the word that speaks you, even as you speak the word, you, a creator, in the image and likeness of your dad. Verse 8, the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes into righteousness, and with the mouth one confesses into salvation. For the scripture says everyone who believes on him, remember he's the foundation stone, will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all, those calling on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, Yahweh, will be saved. He's quoting Joel. How then will they call on him who they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news, the good news. But they have not all obeyed, literally listened to, the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing by a word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Has Israel not heard? Has my church not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the end of the world. That's Psalm, he's quoting Psalm 19.4. Creation whispers the word to us all the time. Sun, moon, rocks, flowers, stars, they whisper, I, I didn't make me, and you didn't make you, and yet we're good. Verse 19, but I asked, did Israel, my church, not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. That's Deuteronomy 32, 21, and, and it's lyrics to a song that Moses sings at the end of the giving of the law, and get this. He tells Israel to record the law as a testimony against them. <laughs> but to sing the song when they have failed to obey the law. The word is whispered by creation. The word is sung when the law has failed. 
verse 20. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I've been found by those who did not seek me. I've shown myself to those who did not ask for me. That's Isaiah 65.1, in testimony to the fact that the righteous one, in Isaiah 53, has made many righteous borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And so the word is whispered by all creation, sung when the law has failed, and understood when rising from a tomb in a garden by a tree at the edge of eternity and time. Verse 21. But of Israel, my church, he says all day long, I think this is the sixth day, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. I asked them, has God rejected his people? My church, Israel. I ask them, has God rejected his people? By no means. Meganoito. Hell no. That's Paul's point in Romans. It's only the sixth day of creation. Not all is finished in space and time. The word is still at work, and the word will accomplish that for which it was sent. And if you've heard it, You'll speak it and sing it and whisper it all the time. You'll speak him even as he's speaking you. I grew up knowing I was different, wrote Marianne Bird, and I hated it. I was born with a cleft palate, and when I started school, my classmates made it clear to me how I looked to others. A little girl with a misshapen lip, crooked nose, lopsided teeth, and garbled speech. When schoolmates asked, what happened to your lip? I'd tell them I'd fallen and cut it on a piece of glass. Somehow it seemed more acceptable to have suffered an accident than to have been born different. I was convinced that no one outside my family could love me. Then I entered Miss, Mrs. Leonard's second grade class. Mrs. Leonard was round and pretty and fragrant, with shining brown hair and warm, dark, smiling eyes. Everyone adored her, but no one came to love her more than I did, and for a special reason. The time came for the annual hearing test given at our school. I could barely hear out of one ear and was not about to reveal something else that would single me out as different, so I cheated. The whisper test required each child to go to the classroom door, turn sideways, close one ear with a finger, while the teacher whispered something from her desk, which the child repeated. Then the same for the other ear. Nobody checked how tightly the untested ear was covered, so I merely pretended to block mine. As usual, I was last. But all through the testing, I wondered what Mrs. Leonard might say to me. I knew from previous years that the teacher whispered things like, the sky is blue, or do you have new shoes? My time came. I turned my bad ear toward her, plugging up the other just enough to be able to hear. I waited, and then came the words that God had surely put into her mouth. Seven words that changed my life forever. Mrs. Leonard, the teacher I adored, said softly, I wish you were my little girl. The 
the Word was in Mrs. Leonard. And then the Word was in Marianne Bird. And now the Word is in you. And God not only wishes, wish you were my little girl. God wills what he wants and wants what he wills. And there is no other will that can thwart his relentless desire for you. Not even yours. Why does he like you? Not because of your free will, but because liking you is his free will. And so at the edge of time and eternity, when, I mean, think about it, when we did our absolute worst, our Father revealed the very best. He took bread and he broke it saying, this is my body given to you. And in the same manner, after supper and having given thanks, he took the cup and he said, this is the covenant in my blood. The life is in the blood. The life is in the blood like the breath is in the blood. The spirit is in the blood. Faith, hope, and love. Free will is in the blood. If you would, just close your eyes now and um, try to imagine, all right? Imagine Jesus giving you However this looks to you, Jesus actually giving you his body and his blood. Well, wait a second. Just, I want you to be quiet and imagine this. And then we'll sing. Imagine him giving you his body and his blood. And you say to him, why did you have to do this? And he answers, I didn't. This is who I am and who I choose to be. But now let me ask you, who are you? And who do you choose to be? And now suddenly you're a little child. Because that is what you actually are. And yet you're dressed like an adult. Like Darth Vader. I don't know, maybe you're sitting on your bed in, in the room you grew up in. <laughs> and the Lord says to you, and you can picture him as male or female at this point. He says to you, will you allow me to undress you? 
you hand him your lightsaber. He takes off your mask and your cape. He tucks you into bed, gives you a kiss, and then he says this. You're not Darth Vader. You're my little girl. You're my little boy in whom I am well pleased. Today, Friday, you tried to be Darth Vader. But tomorrow, tomorrow is take your daughter to work day, take your son to work day. So tomorrow I'm going to take you to work with me. And it'll feel like play. Together we'll sit on my throne. Together we will freely will an entire creation into existence with just our word. And then I'll clothe you with the sun as you stand on the moon and I crown you with stars. Twelve stars to be precise. And now, do you understand what this all means? It means, I like you a lot. And my opinion does not change. And now, uh, yeah. So this is, a, this is a simple thing, all right? God likes you. I mean, really, really, really. He just really likes you. But now this is the confusing thing. So uh, let me ask you. Do you like yourself? Now you see, that's a kind of a trick question. And it's a little more confusing because... Um, you don't yet know who you are. I mean, John even says this. We don't yet know what we will become, but we know that we will be like him. You don't actually know who you are. And, and I don't actually know in detail who you are, but I know this much. You're not Darth Vader. But you are a unique particular image of God our Father. So, in order to obey God, in order to like yourself the way he likes you, because you're supposed to do what he does, you know, you're going to have to trust him. And so this is the word. He likes you. Believe the gospel in Jesus' name, and he'll show you who you are. Amen.